0: This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. The scripture reading for today is John 14, verses 12 through 31. It can be found on page 901 in your pew Bibles. even in the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be, will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, also will live. In that day, you will know that I am the Father and you and me, and I and you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will also be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, "'Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world?' Jesus answered him, "'If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him.'" And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you have, the word, one second, (laughs) the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and to bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here.
1: Good morning. It's good to be with you. Happy Father's Day. Okay, wow. It's going to be like that, huh? Happy Father's Day? <laughs> no, I, I don't want it back to me. I want you guys to bless the fathers that are here. Okay. I don't want it back to myself. That's not what I'm trying to do here. Maybe I lacked clarity in the expectations, and therefore we, uh, we missed one another. Hey, my name's Ron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, we then we'll, we'll jump into the text together. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for the word. We thank you that your word is true, it is alive, it is active, it is able to come and shape us and form us and instruct us and keep us. God, this morning as we receive your word and hear your word, the words of the truth of the Holy Spirit and his ministry in our midst. I ask that you would come and release his ministry among us. God, even in this moment, as we hear these words, as we gather together under your word, would you allow us to be receptive to the promises that are given by Jesus about the ministry of the Spirit. Spirit of God, you're welcome here. We welcome you. We welcome your activity. We welcome your ministry among us, your works among us, your empowering presence among us, your conviction among us, your comfort among us. Lord, would you come and be here would you give grace upon the speaking and the hearing of your word? Would you give us the spirit of revelation? We ask in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. So we're resuming our time in John 14 to 16. And if you uh, are new with us, haven't been here with us over the last couple of weeks, we've been digging into what's called the Upper Room Discourse, which is John chapter 14 to 16. And I'm going to breeze through this review that you've got in your hands if you have those notes and you're following along. But essentially what's happening in this uh, section of scripture is Jesus has gathered his disciples on the night that he's going to be handed over to his death. And as he is looking for the difficult events that are on the horizon for them, both in his crucifixion and then a little further when he's going to ascend to the Father and depart from them, he begins this section of scripture by exhorting them to not let the circumstances dominate their hearts with trouble or sorrow or uh, despair, to not be overcome by difficulty in the midst of these circumstances that await them. And he invites them to a posture of believing faith in him and in his father as he moves forward, as as the means by which their hearts will be stabilized and secured in the midst of difficulty. And what he then does for the next several chapters is lays out for them all of these beautiful truths that are meant to be believed upon and uh, grabbed hold of by faith that are meant to stabilize them and protect their hearts and give them uh, his peace as he departs from them. And this morning, as we heard read, this section uh, highlights in a very specific and particular way the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit as he comes to dwell with the followers of Jesus after Jesus is taken to be with the Father. And so what we're going to look at this morning, I have three outlined. Uh, If it's anything like the first service, we're actually only going to get to two and we'll pick one up next week. Uh, But I've got three um, applications of the Spirit's ministry among believers that Jesus highlights here. And I want us to remember as we come to these truths, these truths, again, are meant to be rehearsed. In us to be laid hold of by faith, to be walked in, to be stabilizing to us as we face temptation in this world to become overwhelmed with sorrow and despair. When we feel like we've been left alone or we experience these moments of hopelessness or despair, these truths are meant to stabilize us and give us security in this world. And so we're going to look at Potentially three, likely only two, but I'll give you all three of them ahead of the time. So we see Jesus lay out three ways that the Spirit comes and provides his empowering presence among his people. The first thing we're going to see is that the Spirit empowers greater works. And answered prayer. So we, we have this category where Jesus says, uh, I'm going to depart from you, and those that follow me, those that believe in me, will experience and walk in the same works that I did even greater. And there, there will be this experience of answered prayer. We see that the Holy Spirit is remarkably integral to that reality. So the Spirit comes to empower the believers for greater works and answered prayer. The second thing we'll look at is the Spirit of God comes to the followers of Jesus to empower obedient love. He comes to empower obedient love, and that in some ways could be said to to be the main thrust of this section. It's one of those realities where if you see something emphasized or repeated again and again and again, it, you, you highlight that this is important. Jesus says five times in this section the, the correlation between love and obedience. And we see this put forward in the context of the Spirit of God coming to help and empower the people of God. So the Spirit empowers the people of God for obedient love. And then lastly, what we'll likely look at next week is the Spirit of God empowers the people of God for union with God, with, for union with God and experiences of his presence. So that's where we're heading this morning. Look with me at Roman numeral, chap, or Roman numeral two. Jesus begins this section on the Spirit's presence, his ministry, and his power by declaring that his disciples would walk in his authority by doing the same works that he had done, even greater works. Look at verse 10 in chapter 14, if you've got your Bibles open. He says, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak them on my own authority, but the Father who's in me, who dwells in me, does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. And if you Don't believe that. Believe the works themselves. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes, say whoever, whoever. Whoever. Okay, that's an important word. Circle it, underline it, highlight it. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus begins in this section as he's going to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit among his people. He says, whoever believes in me, if you look at the works that I have done, if you look at the things that I have accomplished in this world, whoever believes in me will walk in those kind of works as my ambassadors in the world, and even greater works than these because I go to the Father. So we have to ask the question, what does Jesus mean here? Because it would be easy for us as 21st century Christians who have been raised in a post- Scientific revolution kind of world to believe that uh, our experience of not seeing this kind of reality would shape how we interpret it. But I want to offer you that Jesus means what he says here. So don't let your or my experience or lack thereof shape our interpretation of what Jesus is trying to instruct us to receive and experience as normative in the work of God's ministry. So the works of Jesus, let's just lay out what that means. The gospels outline throughout them the nature of Jesus's works. The power of his works are related to the manifestation of God's kingdom in this world. So you could could summarize Jesus's ministry as the inauguration or the bringing in of the kingdom of god to this present age. I mean think about it when Jesus shows up in the gospels often the first words that the gospel writers use to summarize Jesus's ministry out of his mouth are what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. The kingdom is here. It's crashing into this world, it's breaking into this world, this world that has been marked by destruction and rebellion and evil, the kingdom of God is present. Repent and believe, right? So this is the message of Jesus and the kingdom of God breaking into the world in the works of Jesus is expressed in several ways. The first way that it's expressed is through healings. We see these miraculous healings where Jesus is given the power over sickness and disease and this is a demonstration of God's kingdom breaking into the world as his compassion towards the world in Matthew 14 14 we see uh, the the author explain the correlation between the compassion of Jesus and the healing of Jesus he goes up on the hill and he sees the, the scattered sheep and he goes, they're like a sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion. He's moved with deep compassion and sympathy towards that and it says, so he healed them. He came toward them and he brought the expression of God's kingdom into the world by making what is wrong in the physical realm right, bringing healing where there was sickness, and brokenness and discord where the world's world has been marked by brokenness and the curse Jesus came and he brought the kingdom of God in works of healing right? so when there were places where there was sickness in people's bodies he would come and bring the healing power of God restoring bodies to health and wholeness the second place we see this is in the ministry of deliverance. Jesus possessed power over the works of darkness, over Satan, his adversary, over the demonic, over demons that would come and uh, uh, move in the world. Jesus declared that he had bound the strong man through his ministry. So in Matthew 12, Jesus gives this picture and he says I I've come in and bound up the strong man, meaning the one who had authority in this world. I came and because of my life, my ministry, my power in the world, I have bound him. Paul says it this way in Colossians when he says he put the principalities and the powers to open shame when he uh, was victorious over them at the cross. He, He won a decisive victory against Satan and against the demonic. But he manifested the power of the kingdom by taking places where people were oppressed by the devil and driving darkness back so that the light of God could be expressed in their lives. We see this again and again. So much so that John, in his first letter, describes that one of the primary reasons Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. How many of you, if you are asked, why did Jesus come? One of the first things that you say is to destroy the works of the devil, right? We often will go to, he came to seek and save the lost. He came to demonstrate the love of God. He came to bring the kingdom. We might even say that. But how many of us, when asked, why did Jesus take on flesh to destroy the works of the devil, John would say, to take this principality and powers that rule over places and drive them back by his authority. He came to express the kingdom in that way. And we see this all over the place when Jesus delivers people from demonic oppression He delivers them and provides for them reprieve in order that they might be of sound mind and sound emotional makeup. And again, don't let our worldview and our experience tell you that there's a different way of making sense of that, right? There are principalities, there are demonic forces, there are spiritual forces That when Jesus comes to work, there's darkness that is pushed back. This happens, right? So he came to deliver. That's the second way that you could express the works of Jesus. The third is through the work of proclamation. Jesus was anointed in a very particular way to proclaim the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. This was cast like seed throughout the world, right? So Jesus, at at the beginning of his ministry in the Gospel of Luke, he stands up, he reads from the Isaiah scroll, the place where the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim something, right? To open my mouth and speak the good news of the Lord's salvation, the favor of the Lord, liberty for captives, sight for the blind, all of these things. And Jesus says, this is fulfilled in your hearing meaning there was a specific and particular anointing that Jesus had to proclaim the good news of the gospel with power and authority. This is why you get all throughout the gospels, the people are marveling at Jesus's speech, right? It says that he spoke with one that had authority, not just like the scribes and the Pharisees who knew a lot of things and they knew all the answers and they had real comprehensive knowledge, but when Jesus spoke, there was authority in his speaking. He had this as his ministry. You could put other things in there. There are other categories that Jesus walked in authority in and his works, but those three summarize so much of what Jesus did, right? So his works are The kingdom of God expressed into the world primarily in places of healing, deliverance, and authority in proclamation, okay? So now Jesus says, whoever believes in me, these works they will do. These types of things they will do because I go to the Father. So Jesus promises that because he goes to the Father and because the sending of the Spirit that his disciples would perform these works even greater than them than he accomplished. Now we can maybe understand this in several ways, right? There's a lot of interpretations that have been offered because of, to try to make sense of what does Jesus mean by greater works than I do, you will do because I go to the Father. I wanna give you just three potential Uh, interpretations. And I like to think of a a mixture of the first one and the third one in, in the way that I, I think this is being expressed. The first interpretation, which is pretty common, is that Jesus is saying they'll be greater because the scope of them will be greater. Meaning Jesus walked as one person in the world. And so he walked through the world and his capacity with how many people he could interact with on any given moment was limited, right? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about all the people who lived in the world when Jesus walked the world that did not get to hear his voice or receive his healing power? right? As Jesus went through 30 some years of his life before he was openly anointed to minister, how many people did he interact with that he did not bring these kind of works to bear in their lives? There was, because of his humanness, a limitation, Right, so Jesus ascends to the Father and he says, now because I go to the Father, I will send my very spirit to dwell in my followers and they will be empowered to go to the ends of the earth as my ambassadors to bring the message of my kingdom to the world, right? So the scope gets uh, becomes greater because Jesus departs And sends the Spirit to his his followers. So the Spirit of the ministry of the Spirit now moves to the ends of the earth through his church. That's a helpful understanding, I think. A helpful interpretation of what greater means. Some people do believe. Number two, uh, that this means greater in magnitude. That there's like more potency to be expected. However, I, I don't think this is as likely. Uh, I, I can understand why someone would, would believe this or, or understand it this way. But Jesus demonstrates absolute authority over lots of things, right? Over sickness. So much so, there's times when he heals people he's not even near, right? With the centurion that time, he goes, hey, just say the word and command Healing, I, I know what it's like to be under authority. If you say the word, it happens. And Jesus goes, okay, here we go. And he does it, right? He commands storms to stop. He sees life come back into Lazarus's body after days. So I don't think what we're talking about here is the level of potency or how um, like miraculous they appear necessarily. So the magnitude is not, I, I don't believe, the most helpful interpretation. Uh, third way you could interpret this, and I, I want to season the first interpretation with this one because I don't think it's the only way. I don't, want to talk out, I don't want us to talk ourselves out of pursuing the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in our world through healing and deliverance and proclamation. I don't want us to do that. However, there is a a way that you could believe that the greater works that Jesus speaks of here is the manifestation of self-giving love among his disciples that will display to the world that we belong to God. I mean, what greater miracle is there if you and I actually loved each other? What greater miracle is there? I mean, Jesus over and over again says, hey, you wanna know how the world's gonna know you belong to me? When you embody the same life-giving sacrificial love that I have. This is what he gets at earlier in chapter 13 when he washes the disciples' feet and he says, hey, I've done this among you and I'm the master. What, what must the servant do in response to that, if I've been like this among you here, what would it look like for you to do that? And I wonder if there is a part of the idea of greater works being the reality that sinful people, like you and me, because Jesus was sinless, right? It's one thing for the matchless, eternal, sinless son of God to walk in these things. It feels like a whole different thing for you and for me, right? I know who I am, <laughs> you know who you are, you know the des- like how little you deserve. That kind of access into the life of God. And he says, I will bestow this upon you, these kind of works and greater. So I don't believe that we should let our experience or our lack thereof of these kind of gifts determine what we believe or our desire for them in relation to the authority of God's kingdom in the life of our church. I just want to say this clearly. Our church here, we believe and long for everything that God has for us and we want to seek. I don't just mean uh, we hypothetically believe this. Like we seek after and pursue demonstrations of the spirit's power as a church family, this is part of who we are uh, I've, used, I've used the example of a, a lot of contemporary evangelicals talk about um, wh- like having an open but cautious relationship to the spirit of God and Number one, I don't know if there is a biblical warrant for that. Um, a lot of times what that ends up being like is people who believe something like, I believe space travel is possible, right? Like, I believe it's possible. Do I ever think I'm gonna go to space? No, not at all. There's one re- reality of going like, yeah, sure, space, space travel's possible. What does it feel like to get strapped into the booster seat, right? Like you're you're strapped in and you feel the things start to rumble and you're going up, right? Like there's a different reality. We don't believe in the Spirit's presence like most people would believe that space travel is possible. We believe it like we long for the experience of that in our church and we long to seek it and pursue it. And I think that we're finding ourselves coming to a moment in history where this is going to become more important for us. I've been, I've been chewing on these two passages from 1 Corinthians 2 and chapter 4 over the last several weeks. They've been really like stirring around in me as it relates to what I want to invite us into as a people, particularly as it relates to Witness. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, When I came to you, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. How many of you think that when we are relating to people our witness, we need like really, really persuasive speech? I have to have all the arguments right. I got to have all the logic down. I need to be really wise. I need to be really winsome. I need to be able to present this in such a way that when you see it, you're going to go, yeah, of course, that's what I've been looking for my whole life. That is so airtight and reasonable. Paul goes, when I came to you guys, I didn't try to do that because you guys gave your lives away Corinth was like this hub for earthly philosophical wisdom. And Paul goes, I came into that spot. I didn't even try to win you over with, what's he say here? Lofty speech and wisdom. What did he do? I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came with one message. The Messiah has come and he has made a way for sinful, rebellious people to come into his kingdom by dying, by dying. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. But what were they in? Demonstrations of the spirit and of power. then he goes on further in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk. It consists in power. It consists in the power of God being demonstrated in this world where God takes all that is true about his kingdom and manifests it into this world. That's what gives witness to what we're doing, right? And I think we find ourselves at a moment in history where we are going, The way forward in our proclamation and in our witness is somewhat dependent on the power of God. Not our plausible, lofty speech. Not our man-made wisdom. We need God's power. We need demonstrations of power. We need the Spirit of God active and present in our midst, Jesus then tells his disciples after this that he answers prayers offered in agreement with the Father's leadership. Jesus desires that his people would partner with him in his work of kingdom proclamation throughout the world. So this means in some ways, right, when we come to a place where we see the gap between God's desires and the reality of our experience, What we do is in humility, we come to him and ask him to bring his kingdom to the situation. And he says, I will answer those prayers. I will answer those prayers. So Jesus moves us here then. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that the Father would be glorified. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So the first thing we see is that Jesus promises that the Spirit will empower his people to do his works and to operate in this kind of prayer. The second thing that we're going to see this morning is he shows that with the ministry of the Spirit, his people will be empowered to obedient love. Jesus connects, and I find this to be unbelievable here, answered prayer to the power to love and obey him by the help of the Spirit. This is integrally connected. This is remarkably joined together here. Two times in the previous verses, Jesus emphasized that he would do whatever we ask in his name in order that the father would receive glory. Then almost immediately he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you will walk in my ways. So we see there's this dynamic relationship between prayer and expressing love for God through obedience. I I wanna make a claim here. I think the most important work of the Spirit in our lives is empowering us to love Jesus. I think the most important work or the first order of business of the Spirit's life at work among his people. In the world, his first work is to glorify Jesus. In his people, it is to bring glory to Jesus by empowering his people to love him, to love him. After telling people to ask anything in his name, Jesus focuses for this whole section on the grace to love him more. I don't want you to miss that. After him saying, ask anything in my name and I'll do it, that the father would be glorified. He spends the rest of the section highlighting the grace to love him. This is the ultimate thing we ask him for. I think this is the primary thing that should consume our prayers before him. For grace to love him more. Grace to walk in his ways. Now, Jesus had defined this a few days prior as the first in the great commandment. This is the highest priority to God. It's what he desires most. And I think with any commandment is baked into it the promise for grace to walk it out. And so the grace to walk this out is the thing that he desires to give to his people the most. Matthew 22 This is Jesus when they come to him and ask, what's the greatest commandment? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. Now, Jesus here defines for us what love is. He defines love as connected to obedience to his commandment. As we saw a few weeks back in John 15, when we were talking about abiding in a similar way, Jesus gets to define the way that our love is expressed to him. I want you to drill in on this for a second. Our love to God is not primarily, and the word primarily matters there, it is not primarily about experiencing feelings of emotions or of affection or tenderness or desire. Those are all really important And we want to ask God for lots of those. They're not bad and they're not wrong. That's just not primarily what we mean when we talk about the love of God or loving God. The primary expression of loving God is seeking to walk in his commandments with a spirit of obedience. That is the primary way we express love to God. So when we talk about loving Jesus or loving God, we are not first and foremost talking about some emotion or sentiment. What we are talking about is a life that is ordered under the commandments of God and is seeking to pursue those commandments in a spirit of obedience. Now, obedience doesn't earn God's love for us. It's... Really important that we remember that. Our obedience to God doesn't earn his love for us. He set his love upon us by his grace alone, by his choice alone, in his kindness alone, in his mercy alone. Yet, our love, obedience is the primary way we express love to him. The power to walk before God in obedient love is the primary idea of this section. It's mentioned five times. I want you to just hear them. Verse 15: If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24: he says it in the negative. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And then verse 31, Jesus does this remarkable thing, and he roots it in his example of this. But I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? So that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus says, I express my love to the Father through submitting to his commandments, and all those who call upon me will express their love by submission to my commandments. It's important for us to recognize that seeking to faithfully deny our sinful desires and walk in obedience is the primary place that God has chosen for us to express our love to him. This matters immensely to him. This is, we walk this out in a lot of places, right? In our purity. Purity of our actions, purity of our hearts, purity of our eyes, our relationships with our money, with our time, with our tongues. There's lots of places where we express this. We seek to obey Jesus as much as we have the grace to, right? So like, so like as he shows us, we set our hearts and seek to conform our lives to his ways. And that is what he receives as love. That's what this scripture is telling us. So when you, in your life, come up against your sinful desire, right? You experience that desire to lash out at somebody, to undercut somebody, to slander them, to gossip against them, to speak down to them right? You experience it in the way that you want to present yourself as something that you're not. You want to strive for a little more. You want to take some for yourself. You want to, whatever that place is in a relationship, you experience anger or lust or all of those things. You experience that and you reach in that place, to deny your sinful desire and by grace, the grace of God, submit your life to his ways. He looks at that and says, that's love. That is love. That is love to me. He receives it as such. Now obedience here, I want us to remember or be washed with is not about perfection. It's about faithfully and intentionally seeking to walk in a spirit of freedom that's experienced from a heart of love to Jesus. This will be weak throughout our lives, but it is sincere and it is genuine to the Lord. There will be places where you seem to break through in that place, right? You 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 gain some ground and you overcome that struggle or that sin for a little while, and then you'll find yourself, you fall back into it, right? This, it's not about sinless perfection that Jesus is talking about here. What he's talking about is a spirit of obedience that is uh, submitted to his ways, seeking to walk in them. And when you don't, you're quick to repent for it. You don't make excuses for it. You don't try to blame it on something else. You repent. You acknowledge sin for what it is. You call it out. You repent for it. You turn back to God. You receive his grace, and then you set yourself to obey him. That's what it means here. So to walk in his commandments is a, is a heart posture that says, I will seek to obey him in all that I he has shown me. Right, so I want you to look at this, and this matters to the Lord, even in its weakness, even in its like frailty. He sees it as sincere and genuine. Look at Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. This verse has been really messing with my heart lately. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time comes, before the Lord comes to us who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And if we stop there, how many of you go, ouch? Whoo, no thanks. Uh, I'm about to get like some pretty pretty gnarly stuff going. What does Paul say? He says, then each one will receive his commendation from God. What Paul's saying here is, There are movements of the human heart that God will remember forever. Movements to obey him when it was hard and costly and no one was looking. Movements to struggle against your fleshly, selfish desires and obey what he called good. He will remember that He will see it and he will bring it to light, Paul says. Now, think about this as the exchange rate or the economy of grace in the heart of God. The Psalms tell us that the things that we have repented for before God, the things that have been covered by his mercy, have been cast into the sea of forgetfulness that he says, I don't even remember them as far as the east is from the west. That's how far I've cast your transgressions away from me. And at the same time, he goes, every movement of your heart made in a genuine desire to show love for me through obedience, I will remember it. Even when you don't, Paul goes, some of them were hidden. Some of them were like in the inner recesses of the heart where you said, God, I want to be pleasing to you. I want my life to be conformed into your ways. Would you give me the grace to do that? You may never remember it and no one might give you any accolades for it today, but God sees it and he says, it matters to me. That Matters to me. I receive that as love, as a fragrant offering of your devotion to me, and I will remember it forever. It won't go unnoticed. How unbelievable is the economy of God! What a gift! What a gift! And so we intentionally seek to walk in a spirit of obedience by warring against sin and asking God to release his help to us as we walk in a spirit of obedience. I just want to do this really quick, and then we'll close. I want to outline what I mean when I say walk in a spirit of obedience. The spirit of obedience looks like this. I think it looks like three things. Number one, it looks like true repentance. True repentance. In the Bible repentance and faith go hand in hand. Right? Repentance is acknowledging that sin is high treason against God, that it grieves his heart, that it is outside of his ways, and it doesn't try to make excuses for it. Right? It doesn't go, okay, yeah, I did that, but you know, the situation was really hard. I mean, I was in, I was in a tough spot. All the people around me really wanted me to do it. And I didn't want to, I didn't want anybody to think that I was being like judgmental or something. And so I didn't say no. Right. I, I just went along with it. Cause I didn't want to like make it appear like I was looking down at my nose on all those other people that were doing this. And I didn't want to come across as like better than anybody else. So I just did it. And you know, don't make excuses you did it. That is repentance. Repentance is acknowledging. I did this. I have a choice. No one forced me. No one made me. I did it. Against you and you alone have I sinned, David says in Psalm 51. Nobody made me do it. I did this and I did it before your face. And repentance then moves from that place, acknowledges sin as sin, doesn't make excuses for it, and then it turns to the Lord, turns away from the sin and turns back to the Lord. And the beautiful thing that we get to know in the grace of God is that that moment we are received by the Lord with his mercy. You don't have to put yourself in the penalty box. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to prove to him how sorry you are. It's not like a human relationship where you've got to do your time in the penalty box to show them that you really meant that you're sorry this time. You don't have to do that. All you have to do is go, God, I sinned. I did this. I turned to you and I receive your mercy fresh. That's Repentance. Then we set our hearts to obey. There is a remarkable, important, necessary part of our obedience that is a genuine before God. I set myself to obey you here. God, would you receive my vows? I long to obey you here. right? So that's both internal, before the Lord. It's God, I I stumbled in this. God, I I want to be submitted to your ways, your commandments. I want to be obedient. I set my heart to not speak that way, to not react that way, to not behave that way, whatever that thing is. I set myself before you. And that may actually then express itself in something external, right? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about lust specifically, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What he's saying is, if there are places and uh, situations you find yourself being drawn away into the currents of sin, it is worth it to you to be violent against those. It is worth it to you. It would be better for you to not participate in that thing and to miss out and have a clean soul and a vibrant heart than it would for you to be defiled and to have that thing as well. And then we ask God for grace. We ask God for grace. Now, this is what's amazing in the section we're talking about. Two things. Number one, Jesus calls the spirit the helper here. I think it's remarkable, right? Look at this. Look at the connection in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What are the next words? And I will ask the Father, and he will help. He will send help to you. He will send the Spirit of God who proceeds forth from God himself to come to you and enable you and empower you to love God through obedience. He says, I will send you help. You don't have to do it alone. You don't have to try to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and white knuckle your way. What does Jesus say here? The Father will send you help. And what did he just say before this? If you ask anything in my name, the Father will love to do it. You wanna know a prayer that God will love to answer in your life? I want to love you with everything that I have. Will you come and help me? You want to know one he will never not answer? That prayer. He will send grace. Over time, he will send more and more and more and more grace. Now let me help you with something quickly. Grace does not always mean that it's just like, on the clouds, I'm overcome, I had no thought, I just like did it, it was easy. Grace just means it's doable. Grace just means that that thing in front of you is doable. That's what the grace of God does. It empowers you to walk in the midst of difficult choices as you partner with him, as he releases it upon you, So God loves to answer that prayer. Prayers for help me love you. Help me love you. Help me obey you. Help me keep your commandments. He will send help and he loves to answer that. Amen. Would you all stand? Like I said, we'll get to the next one next week, the last one. I at least gave you the right expectations on the front end. The first service just had a abrupt, here it comes. Hey, I'm gonna, let's just take a moment to present ourselves to the Lord. Ask him to move in our midst and then we'll come and we'll respond. And the ways we respond every week here, we sing, so we worship God. We come back into agreement again with who he is. We respond by coming to the table, remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ as the the only way that we can experience life with God. And we respond by ministering with one another and to one another in the place of prayer. We have ministers throughout the room that would love to pray with you for anything, anything. As we pray, I'm gonna ask the Lord to even stir our hearts to speak to us, to highlight places in our hearts that we need more grace or we need to submit ourselves to him. And if there's something that you want prayer for this morning, we have people that would love to stand with you, pray with you, pray for you. If you're sick in your body, if there's places where you're feeling oppression or you're feeling the need for God to come and breathe his life into you. If there's places where you're going, I want to experience the grace of God in this place that I'm struggling and I long to obey. I long to love him by submitting to his commandments. We would love to stand and ask the spirit of God to give you more grace. One of the ways that God ministers to his people is through his people. And we would love to stand and ask him to do more, to ask these kind of prayers. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We wanna stand together and ask those kind of things this morning. But before we do that, I just want us to stand before the Lord, just present ourselves to him. God, we love you. We thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your truth. Holy Spirit, would you minister in our midst right now? I ask that you would come and that you would speak to us. Would you direct us into your love? God, I ask you would move uh, in, in recognizable ways this morning. Lord, we know you're here with us. We, we have the promises of your word that there is no place that we can be that you are not with us. When we gather, you are with us. You have been given to us as a guarantee. So we, we know you are with us. I ask that there would be ways this morning that we would recognize your presence among us through healing, through deliverance. God, through um, the stirring of our hearts in the place of longing to be submitted to you, would you come and move among us? On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body broken for you, for your healing. Take it and eat it. And in the same manner, he took a cup of wine and he passed it around and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. My blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take this and drink this. This morning, we're going to come and celebrate the the table of the Lord together. This table is open for any and all who call upon the name of Jesus, who put their faith in him and him alone as the, as the way to receive life before God to find salvation. And if that's you, we wanna invite you to come and celebrate this meal with us. We take, uh, we take communion at Redeemer by tearing a piece of the bread off, dipping it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware. We have juice in the glassware. We have servers in the front, middle, and up in the balcony and a gluten-free to my right. To your left servers, you're welcome to come on forward now. If you're in the room and you don't put your faith in Jesus, you're not a believer, you don't follow him, uh, we want to ask that you not come take this meal. We don't want you to feel the pressure to come and uh, do, do, do some religious ritual or something. This meal is a signifier. It, it points to a reality that we put our hope in, that we bank our whole life in. If you don't bank your life in the reality, uh, don't come and take this the signifier. Um, we, we ask that you just stay in your seat and um, maybe receive from the Lord or pray. We have cards in your seatbacks that would give you language of what talking to God might sound like. Um, we're really glad you're here, but don't feel the pressure to come and, and take this meal with us. But for those who are receiving, we're gonna come and respond this way. Um, and, and like I said, we have people in the room that would love to pray with you. And we're going to worship together uh, before the Lord. So come and receive when you're ready.